Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and my guest today is not only a talented author, but also a fellow Come Up Show alum. Eternity Martis is a Toronto-based journalist and senior editor at Extra. She writes about race and gender, relationships and identity politics. She's been a finalist for the National Magazine Awards Best New Writer, and CBC Books has named her a writer to watch in 2020. When she went off to Western University, she didn't know what to expect. Of course, there's the classic Hollywood picture of parties and independence, and she found that. But she also found campus was a place she learned more about how other people saw her, how she navigated labels, racist remarks, all kinds of things she wasn't prepared for. It's all part of her first book, They Said This Would Be Fun. It's about race, campus life, and growing up. Here's her story. First of all, I'm very excited to talk about your new book and congratulations in order, but I I thought what better way to start than just to get into a bit of what growing up was like. You, You write about yourself as someone who was always between worlds. What was being a kid like? What were you like as a kid? I was, um, I was a very interesting kid. I was very quiet. I was very shy. I was very introverted. My entire family always called me an old soul. Um, never hung out with other kids. Like in, you know, at Brown parties, you'd have the kids go to the basement and the adults would sit upstairs and talk. And I was always with the adults. And so I didn't really fit in a whole lot. I was uh, in the book. I talk about my grandma loving to feed me. So I was a well-fed child and we know children can be really nasty. So um, (laughs) I didn't have a lot of friends because I was overweight and, you know, I didn't know how to defend myself as an only child, but I loved my family. And I, I spent a lot of time reading. I spent a lot of time writing, writing fan fiction, and then I grew up to be a super emo kid. I just actually I discovered Blink-182 <laughs> um, on a pizza, pizza CD. Um, and I went from like pop punk princess to like emo teen. And so I, I was always just out of place constantly. So Pizza Pizza had CDs. I was not aware of this. Yes. So it was the coolest thing. So Pizza Pizza used to just for no reason um, give out CDs that were like a mix of like cool songs. And I think it was uh, What's My Age Again was on it. Mm-hmm. So I would just sit on my porch and listen to, on my CD player with a bunch of my friends. And I had listened to the entire CD, except for the Blink-182 song. Because my mom, like if you've read the book, my mom is, um, she loves dance hall. So she would never in a million years let me play a rock song. So I hadn't listened to it. And they were like, just listen to it, you'll like it. And then emo eternity, goth eternity, like pop punk princess eternity was born after that. And when you're black and emo, like... <laughs> <laughs> there's no room for you in high school or anywhere <laughs> people didn't know what to do with you they didn't and I didn't know what to do with myself because I'm like why do I like these things like my mom used to joke with me and be like everything that white people like you like and I'm like I don't know what to say about that because like I'm not really brown I don't have a black dad around my, my, my dad is Jamaican I don't have him around and all the kids I went to school with and in North York like Toronto's like very much like a Jamaican centric slang and they were all using that and they were like, come on, like you should know it. But here I am dressed as a goth, but I also don't know Patois and I was just lost. <laughs> uh, you, you talk about the deep love that you have for your family and it really does come across in the book that you, you write uh, from your mom to your grandparents. Uh, if you could just talk a little bit about the people around you as you're growing up, uh, what your mom was like and your grandparents uh, who you spent so much time with. 
Yeah, I've been really blessed to have a, a lovely family. And um, I come from a family where, you know, there are arranged marriages. My cousins are in, you know, their parents are very strict, but my grandfather was never like that. And he came from Karachi, India, from a super strict family, the only one in our family to refuse an arranged marriage. My mom is the only one who didn't get married, but had a baby out of wedlock. Uh, my grandpa's super liberal. So like everything I wanted was mine. Like, you know, he never forced my mom to get married. He never forced me to take my father's last name. Uh, didn't grow up with gender roles. Like I fixed the TV in the house. Like I would mow the lawn. There was just nothing I couldn't do. And they did everything to support me. I have been through like, I'm terrible at sports, but I have done every single sport. My grandparents, um, you know, they took me to travel the world. And um, my grandmother passed away several years ago, almost 20 years ago. But my grandfather is really lovely, very quiet man. But we do a lot of things together. And my mom, my mom is uh, just a force of a woman. She's like (laughs) very funny, like doesn't give a fuck about anything, Um, like very thick skin. She's covered in tattoos. She has piercings. Um, Yeah, I used to get I used to get bullied in in school and she'd just be like, if anyone fucks with you, fuck them up. And like she's still like that. (laughs) Um, Fan fiction. What kind of fan fiction were you writing? Oh goodness! I used to write. I used to write. Um, I think it was. Uh, I just found it actually, like um, from first to last, fan fiction. So I did Mest and Good Charlotte crossovers, and then I did uh, from first to last. And then when I was thirteen, and I wrote about this for XO Jane, which is now defunct, but I was the most popular fan fiction writer in that category by the age of thirteen. I had like eighty-eight chapters. I had fans like you know how there's like the beehive. I would have fans who would go after other people if they copied me. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was legit. It was legit. <laughs> so these are the early precursors to, of course, uh, what would become writer eternity years later. <laughs> Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I suppose the writer eternity is one and the same from from then and now. Um, so so much much of this book is about university life. Uh, of course, Western University and, and you and I were both at Western at the same time. We were. Um, what's interesting in, in the book, you write about uh, university being a place where you didn't necessarily think you were going to go or you haven't given much thought. Uh, what was the image of university that you knew before you went? Well, the the image of university that I had was like nothing. I had no image. Um, I'm the only one in my immediate family to go to a Canadian university. I'm the only one in my family who is Canadian, who was born here uh, in Canada. The rest of my family is from Karachi. And so we never really talked about university. University was this thing that I was expected to go to, but no one knew what to expect. So in the book, I talk about being in class in grade 11. And there's a scene where everyone is like talking about majors and minus in a campus. If you told me a campus was like a food, I would have thought it was a food. Like I had (laughs) no idea what it was. I'm like, I was so overwhelmed. And because I was such a loner, I was also really book smart. And it was like, I was so disappointed in myself because understanding what university was, was the one thing I could not grasp. And my mom, uh, she never liked school and she went right into the workforce. And that's kind of all I knew. I was like, why would anyone go to university and continue like this nightmare that is like the cafeteria room, you know, like who (laughs) wants to do this? But, um, I don't know. I went to university fair and my friends were going, they had brothers and sisters, and parents had gone uh, to university. So I said, I'll go support. And I was like, whoa, this is kind of cool. So I learned about university and college from going to like a university and college career uh, fair. 
How did you settle on Western? How did I settle in Western? And there's a couple of factors. So the first being that like, I had no social life. Um, I wanted a social life, which was really kind of you could tell from the fan fiction I was writing, I wanted, (laughs) I wanted a life, I wanted something fun and cool. And I just felt like everyone was having fun except for me. But in being shy, I was also very independent. And I just felt kind of like I needed to do my own thing and kind of fly away, so to speak. So I had actually chosen to go to Ryerson and um, ironically, it just, when I went to the the open house, it didn't seem diverse enough. Mm. So I threw that on the back burner. I planned to stay at home and um, the deadline for university was coming. And I was like, I have no idea where I'm going. I don't know what I want to do. And Western, I realized I had thrown the lookbook out and it was in my trash bin because Western was the only school that had all the courses I wanted in English, in women's studies, in social work. And there was the only school that you could combine them all. And I was like, you know what? My friends, like, they don't know what they're doing, but I really want to do this. The school is far. I don't know where London is, but the courses are cool and I could probably party. And sure enough, when I Googled it, like, it's a party school. So I was like, let's just go. You know, I took my best (laughs) friend and we're like, let's go for an adventure. We've been so kind of, we've been loners our whole life. So let's try something new. So you and your friend, uh, you introduce your, your closest friend, Taz, in the book. Uh, you go off to residence together. You're in Medsid Hall. Uh, what is what is Medway Sydenham Hall like if you were to describe it to someone who's never seen it? So Medway, so when people think about residence in Western, they think of Sagin, uh, which is a nightmare. It's just a jungle gym of all kinds of chaos. This was, I was actually put in Sagin, but then I got put into Medsid because my uh, my best friend was in science. So it is... It's it's got like weird little tunnels, very um, very ancient, like lots of brick um, inside, like very standard kind of old school dorm, like brown carpet, uh, brown twin bed frames, brown tables, very brown. Um, nothing exciting. I think like Western has the you know the new ones like Perth and Elgin, which are like they're almost like condos, but this is like a very old school type of dorm. It has a it had a couple of wings there so that you would everyone could meet. It was almost like a square, but you'd live in different corners. Um, it was great. It was like an old building, and I think like for me, never like leaving the house, like barely even for a sleepover, to be in an environment like that where it's not even a new kind of place. It's more of like an old school uh, dorm was really exci- like terrifying, but also terrifying, but also really exciting to have that experience. I thought of it a lot of like like the great the, the great room in Hogwarts kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. This this question is probably only going to be interesting to me and anyone who's been to Western or lived at Medsid. But what floor are you on there? Ooh, oh no, uh, JN two. Oh, JN2? okay, yeah, right, right, right. I've I've forgotten that there were the the numbers JN one, two, and three, and there was yes. another there was another one with like two letters on that side. I was on the Medway side when I lived there. Uh, Where were so, you? Uh, I was there? on. I should know this, Wilson was my floor <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. we thought the wilson kids were cool because they were just wilson we were uh, j jrn or jn or whatever right, right. um that's probably enough of western medicine hall insider <laughs> talk but uh it, it, good to know interesting to know um you know i, I know what my experience was like I, I had fun at western i had some great times but it was also a place i often felt uncomfortable a place you can feel judged insecure there's there's an arrogance a bit to the campus, maybe more than a bit, in the in the hunter boots and the Canada goose and the the bottle yeah. service crowd, uh, all of that. How do you look back on those years? 
I, you know, despite everything, despite writing, writing a book about how awful it was, I actually really had a good time. Like, I think, you know, riding the bus with girls in hunter boots and, and Aritzia leggings and the bottle service crew and the arrogance that you talk about, it was all kind of part of the charm, right? Like, I... I liked it. I liked that environment. I liked being like my own person in this tiny little town that was absolutely batshit crazy. Most times, you know, (laughs) you'd wake up and someone was passed out on your lawn and it was like, okay, cool. And I think all those things were, I had to learn them. But I think the problem for me was that where most people go to learn those things and have fun, I came back with a different experience because just the insidious nature of, you know, of racism there, sexism, homophobia, all the kinds of bad things that are so like, you don't see it on a first glance or even a second glance. Um, Londoners are super friendly. Like coming from Toronto where people just like, you say hi to someone in the morning and they think they're you're gonna kill them. Right. <laughs> like there, everyone's really nice. So I'm like, this is great. But you just don't realize that that conversation can flip so quickly to, oh, I hope you're having a great day to like, oh, I've never seen a black person. And that's the kind of stuff that spoiled the, the, the fun I think I was trying to have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think about this, you know, so much of university or college and moving away to a place and you're 17, 18 years old, it's about finding yourself. It's, you know, the independence and moving away from home. And for so many people, it's uh, it can be a blank slate. You mentioned at Western, you know, uh, I learned more about what someone like me brought out in other people than who I was. Uh, could you mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I went in really not knowing a whole lot about myself, except that I was a curious person. And when it came to race, I didn't know a whole lot about myself because growing up with, uh, you know, Pakistani family, they didn't see me as black. And so the second I stepped foot in London, I was black. Like I was just this like caricature of what people thought I was supposed to be. And I was supposed to be angry and obnoxious and over the top and all these labels were being thrown at me. And you know, I would resist because naturally you just resist that. You're like, well, I'm, you know, I'm not black. I'm, I'm a mixed girl. And they're like, we don't care. You're black. Or you try and resist those stereotypes or you try and, you know, if you're excited, you hush and you get quiet because you don't want people to think you're obnoxious. And I realized that like the way to get through that environment was to survive it by claiming that black identity. That's the way it kind of came to survive the, the environment. So when I would go home, and tell you know family like this happened and they'd be like uh maybe you're exaggerating i don't i I couldn't believe that would happen to you it was happening and there was no one else around to really like get it aside from the people i would meet later on at western so i really learned like what my presence in london meant um what it meant to be a, a black person and be a black woman and just be a woman and how like all of those things people like on a first glance they were throwing these labels at me that I never asked for. Uh, and then I had to survive it and I had to navigate that. But those labels kind of ultimately became the way I survived. Hmm. Some of the stories in this book, they read like they could be part of, you know, Get Out or reminded me of a book like Claudia Rankin's Citizen. The, these just mm-hmm. these such bizarre encounters with people that you think, how could this possibly happen? You know, there's the house party in London with the girl who grew up in town which yeah. I think I, I, I want to save some stories for the book for people to read. So I don't, I don't want to go through the entirety of everything. But there's also your, your first Halloween as a 19-year-old, which you've written about before this book came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go with your friends to Jack's, which for those unfamiliar is like this three-story, two or three-story bar and dance floor. And, uh, and you're going to get drinks at the bar. And these three people 
come up in blackface uh, on Halloween. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? What your reaction was then and, and how you look back on that event now, what it makes you think of? Yeah, um, so just to kind of set it up, it was my first Halloween. I was very excited and I had bought like a super expensive costume and uh, me and my friends were out. So it was me, my best friend who is brown and then another friend who is Jamaican. And we went out and um, through the crowd, I saw these three white people dressed as cotton pickers with blackface uh, approaching us. So they were just going through the crowd, came right at us and they just kind of had a silent standoff where I was yelling at them, like, what the hell are you doing? Like, why don't you say something? And they wouldn't talk. And eventually they turned around and another group of people of color came in and they went to them. And um, I always get asked this question, like, how did you feel? And I still don't think I've ever figured it out. It's, it's one of those things where like, I felt threatened and I felt scared and humiliated, but I don't know why, because it was something that shouldn't have happened. Like you never go to a, like of all the things that could happen at a dance club on October 31st, like a minstrelsy show of sorts was not the one I was expecting. And it just felt like something that like you would watch in a movie, like from the States or you heard about in, you know, like centuries ago, but not something to actually confront. And so I don't know if I've ever actually like figured out what I was feeling in that moment, but, um, but just like, you know, like almost a shock and terror. Like what I do know is that they, they wanted a reaction, obviously. Um, but that's about it. I think about it a lot, actually. One of the things that struck me the most from that segment, uh, because it can be so easy to, I think, from the outside, just think about those three people themselves. But you ask a more important question, which is like, why, why were they even led into the bar in the first place? Who decided it was okay to let somebody like that into the bar who decided that was an acceptable costume i think that speaks to the bigger issues at play here about yeah. uh, what's going on systemically yeah i think uh the fact that three people could dress up in blackface walk through in it like a jam-packed like that night people were like cheating the system and getting in it was it was shoulder to shoulder yet nobody stopped them like that just shows how normalized that is so as you're going through this book, you're writing about uh, your family and your friends uh, and and some really difficult topics, too. I mean, you, you write about abuse as well. Uh, mm -hmm. What why was it important to you to tell that story? Well, the, the story about my my ex-boyfriend was like kind of all, like all consuming in terms of writing this book because it could have been a book itself. And I just didn't want it to be that. Like, I didn't want my university experience to be defined by that. But unfortunately, when I looked back on it, it really was because a lot of those choices were made as a result of that relationship and that incident. So it just felt really important and fitting to put into the book because for young women who are between 15 and 24, they're also of university age. They're the most at risk of intimate partner violence in the country. And yet the way we talk about violence against women, it's still either about teens when it's a dating violence situation or about domestic violence, which tends to be older women who are married. And I fell in somewhere between that where there was really little funding, very little resources. I could get help for sexual assault on campus. Any campus you go to in North America, you could get help for sexual assault. You cannot get help for intimate partner violence. And it just felt like when I was writing it, I'm like, I don't know how this relates. And then I'm like, this relates to everything because I'm just one of those many, many girls who was in that situation. And for my thesis, which I did after I graduated from uh, Western, I went to Ryerson, did my master's of journalism there. 
And for my thesis, I actually took that on because it was still bothering me like six years later. Like if we are, you know, the generation that is, you know, we're in women's studies, we write about ourselves, we like are on the front lines. Why are we in these situations so often? And it more came down to like society and how society views young women. Like they don't think you're in abusive relationships. They think that when you're in university, you're just like screwing off and having the time of your life. And we're up against cyber stalking. We're cyber stalked more than any other age group. We are dying. Um, we are being harassed by our partners. There's so much happening that no one knew about. So it felt important to put my experience in there, but contextualize that with what is actually happening to young women right now. The format that you write about that segment uh, with, with Joshua and the book, you write it in the form of a letter. And, mm -hmm. uh, and it's done in such a way that it's, you know, it's, it's raw and it's intimate, but it also, I think, makes me as a reader feel safe. Uh, it's digging into such deep questions along the way. And it's done just in incredibly well and with sensitivity, I think. How did you land on that format of the letter? The letter, uh, the letter was a, it was kind of just like a last minute thing where I wrote it, I wrote the chapter as like a normal chapter and it never felt right. And one of the things like going through writing courses was that if you're going to write about someone that you don't like, you can't make them a villain. Like it just cannot be, they just can't be bad. And I really struggled in the format of writing it, like the rest of the book, to to not make him look bad. Like it was almost like a he said, she said, and that's not what I wanted. And um, my deadline was approaching. I literally had, I think I had a week left. And I'm like, I am not comfortable with this. This is not the way I wanted to tell this story because so much, it's so hard to get your entire relationship into a couple of pages. And then I just remembered that um, after we broke up, I used to write him letters. So someone suggested that I write letters and then not send them. So I thought about that. I'm like, what if I did it the same way? Whereas I wrote this as a letter, like the way I used to, but this time obviously it was sent. And so that's where the idea came from. And it felt like a much better way of telling the story, keeping what I needed to keep from myself uh, and saying what I needed to say so that other people could relate to it and see you know, what the situation was like. At Western, you did find some community, whether it was Malcolm, who you met in residence, or mm -hmm. whether it was like a class, I think it was an African-Canadian women's studies class uh, in one of your later years. Yes. Um, tell me a bit about the community that you were able to find there in, in, in terms of um, the play uh, community that you found as well, the drama community. Yeah, I, um, you know, like I had Malcolm throughout the whole experience, which was great, but then he moved away from school. And as I was kind of falling out with my best friend and roommate in my the end of second year, I kind of started to venture off. Like I'd always been interested in plays. There was a, a group on campus called V-Day Western, which is like a, a feminist group that is for violence, a group that is against um, violence against women. And I kind of just got into that because they were doing stage plays, they were doing monologues, there was a lot of writing stuff that I was into. And the more I did that, the more I realized, you know, what kind of person I actually was. Like, I did like talking about feminist issues. I did like social justice issues. I did like, you know, directing, theater, writing. And while I was doing all of that and still trying to like find other people of color on campus, I came across this class in fourth year, which was um, Black Women's History in Canada. And it was the first time I'd seen so many women of color and black women in the same spot. And it just became this place where every Wednesday we would talk and chat and cry and hug each other and talk about everything that we had been waiting to talk about for years on this campus. And that happening kind of inspired me to put on the play 
for colored girls at Western. So we, we usually do it through the V-Day group, which we would put on um, the Vagina monologues. But I just felt like we didn't have any like, you know, black focused plays. So I actually got the, the permissions to do for colored girls and cast an all black cast. And there's a teacher at, um, at Western who told me that for colored girls was actually put on in 92, but only white women were allowed to, to um, star in this, in this play. So I put that on and it just felt like it was the perfect ending for a lot of us for our careers because we were all exhausted. We were all tired and the play was really something we needed. And um, yeah, it was like one of the most memorable experiences I had there. When and how did you know that you had uh, a book on your hands, that you had a story to tell out of all of this? Actually, it was at Western. Um, it was in my last year. So I was taking a writing certificate and I was taking it with Dr. Michael Artfield. I had a course where we had to um, do like a final project and I had been writing. So I've been writing this book since like my foot stepped into London, mm-hmm. like on scraps of paper. Like I have like an accordion fo- folder with just scraps. And when I got to fourth year, I was like, you know, I, I kind of want to write about this. I had written it as a play. I had written it as a blog. I had written it as a, like a fiction, like a novel. And I'm like, it just doesn't feel right. And at that time, you know, there was like the, I might get her name wrong, uh, the Sloan Crosley, like those kinds of books where there's like the memoir by women, they were just starting to gain popularity. So I had thought like, oh, maybe I can do this. So I wrote a book proposal as my final project and taking all the scraps I had, I put them into chapters, wrote a full, like a whole book proposal. And my instructor who, you know, he has his own shows. He has several books himself. He was like, you know, like you really have something here. There's actually something here. I have a student who like did something similar and wrote a book and I think you should do it. And I went to Ryerson in the fall, uh, got my degree, kept working on this book, made connections, met my editor Haley. And then, yeah, I just kept pushing. It just felt like I, like I had something like it, it felt like when it was happening, it wasn't the right time. Like nobody was listening. But by the time I got to that place where I could have an agent and have a publisher, like people were ready to listen. Mm-hmm. It took 10 years. You, you talk about this taking 10 years to write this book. I mean, uh, that's yeah. a long time. How did you maintain momentum and focus over such a long time to be able to see it through from from 10 years ago to now? I, I'm i kind of a dork. Like, I, I like to work. I like school. I like to read. I like to work on projects. I'm really artistic. And all those things to me kind of come are like a first priority. And the book was just something I've wanted to write a book since I was eight. Like I like legit have like little scribbles of like my fake books from when I was eight years old in my, you know, in my stuff. And I was just like, I want this so bad that I'm willing to sacrifice my social life. I'm willing to, you know, um, work all hours of the day and night to get this done. And so when I got my agent and my deal, I believe it was 2018. I wrote for like up until the final deadline, I wrote for like every single day straight. I woke up, I wrote, I went to work in the middle of the day at lunchtime, I wrote, I went to the gym, I went home, I wrote, and I did this, I had no social life, I had no outings, and it was lonely, but I just, you know, if I didn't believe in it, what would I have to believe in, right? Like, it's so easy to give up on yourself and let it go, and I just, I just felt like something told me that there was just something there, so, yeah, I sacrificed everything, and now I'm on the apology tour, <laughs> I'm just like, sorry, like, I missed your life for, like, the last, like, several years, but I'm back now, and everyone's been really nice about it. So it's, it all worked out. <laughs> That's good. You know you have good friends if everything's good after after the apology tour, that they're willing yes. to, to welcome you back. 
Exactly. Uh, talk a little bit about the editing process. Uh, you know, you you're an editor. You've you've uh, mm -hmm. also worked with editors, and to have a book go through iterations, as I'm sure it did. Uh, what did you learn from from the editing process, from what you thought you might have had before to to what uh, the book is now? Yeah, I think um, I think I learned to write a book. Like I think I went into it writing essays, but coming out of it, the editing, I learned what a book meant, like what threads to follow. Like you can't just dump something in chapter one and I'll follow through like at the end of it or another chapter. And um, Haley was really great at at you know digging those things for me. And being a journalist, I'm used to a certain type of writing. I was like shook. I didn't realize that like writing a book was so much different than journalism because she would be like, you know, you don't really need to like attribute it this way. Like this sounds like you're like writing for CBC. And I'm like, oh, I'm not supposed to. <laughs> so there was a lot of things that kind of, uh, you know, there's so, it's so much softer in publishing. Like you, there's more of a leap of faith. You don't need to attribute everything. Um, I think one thing, and we talk, you know, talk about this with friends who are editors of mine, is that people always assume that editors are out to get them. Like, we're here to ruin your work. We're here to damage all your stuff and mess up and kill your darlings. But I think, like, being edited and being edited so carefully and compassionately, it's a real blessing to have an editor. Like, we all don't get that. And I think, like, Haley saved me from from myself a lot of times, but also from, from oversights that I hadn't seen, like the stuff about my grandfather, especially, I'll always be grateful to her for that because I was like, I don't think people care about family. I don't think people want to hear about my grandpa, my grandpa. And she was like, no, people love family stories and people will see themselves like, you know, in your family. And anytime I talk to people about the book, it's always about my family. Like, it's always about my grandpa. Hmm. And so stuff like that, which I would have never thought that really made the book like, you know, more well-rounded. This seems like a perfect time to talk a little bit more about family and, and what writing about family is like. One of the one of the greatest tweets I've ever read, and I think actually you shared this like a while ago, maybe even years ago, was about how it takes so long to write a book because I have to write a whole separate version that my family can read. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, how, what was the process like for you, writing a book that's going to include your family in it, wanting to do right by them, or what, what sorts of considerations did you make about how how to how to strike the right note that was it was such a struggle um I, they didn't read the book until march i think i think it was actually march and the book came out march 31st so i was deeply terrified and all of the drafts they just felt like something always felt wrong like it was too tmz or it was too expose and you know nobody has a perfect family and i think like i had to go back and look at things and i and be like would this hurt them like if I take this out, would it still be important? Do I need to tell this stuff about their lives? And I struggle with that constantly. Like the like the balance between what is sacred and what is like for like the public good. And yeah, it was really it was really rough. And I think like I took out a lot of it. Um, writing about my grandma was especially hard because we were so close to her. And I just wanted to do it in a way that like I could stand by, I could be proud of, they could be proud of, and that going into a brown party with all my family, I could walk in and <laughs> like still be, you know, allowed to eat. So um, yeah, it was tough. I just, I kind of just trimmed the fat around everything. I just gave as little as I needed to. I think like we, with a book like this, and I was really inspired by Alicia Elliott's book, um, A Mind Spread Out on the Ground. She tells you so much about her family without telling you much at all. Like at the end of that book, I didn't come out knowing everything about her family, but I knew what I needed to know. And I tried to do the same there. 
when they read it, like they didn't have any complaints, thank goodness. Um, they, you know, they were really upset that I had gone through all that. Like, I think that bothered them a lot, but I don't think there was any way to know I was going through that or to help me through it. Um, but I think the way I portrayed them, I haven't heard any complaints. So I'm very grateful about that. My grandfather's <laughs> one thing was like, you have to talk about like how your grandma like read to you. And I was like, yeah, like obviously, but I dedicated the book to them. So hopefully that made up for, for all the like the bad X-rated stuff. <laughs> I, I'm thinking about like all time, all time leads for the way to open a book. Chapter one, the first time I <laughs> took a hit from a bong, I deep throated it. It's got to be up there. Yeah, and they never brought it up. So, you know, I'm grateful for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Talk about the the weirdness that is um, publishing a book during a global pandemic. What has it been like for you to adapt to get your book out there to readers and find ways of of building, um, you know, an audience and and a community around it uh, in this time? Yeah, so my book literally came like smack right like as everything was shutting down like as we were like by world my book came out and that was super depressing because like you said I've been working on this for 10 years from the day I started writing it I was like one day I'm gonna have a launch one day I'm gonna walk by a bookstore and see my book in the window and you know I'm gonna have my mom take photos of me and then suddenly all that was gone so quickly and I'm not like you know I don't read on a Kobo I read paper books I take handwritten notes and I don't like virtual events like they're not my thing. And suddenly I was forced to kind of reimagine how I was going to promote this book. And I thought about just leaving it and being like, eh, if it's out, it's out. But it just felt like a new kind of more intimate way to like get to know people. Like when you are out signing books, you're just signing books, but when you're talking to people and they can ask you questions directly, it's a whole different thing. And so I decided like, I'll be present here. I will, you know, I'll use Twitter. I'll interact with people. I'll do my own lives. And that has been great, but I think the response has been like more than I can imagine. Like people just reading it, like people are reading books. Like I always think about who decided that reading was like gonna be the thing that we did. And I think that's so awesome. And people are so supportive, um, sharing photos of the book, um, you know, putting it on Instagram stories. So everyone's kind of in this together. And like, I think putting yourself out there, people are responding to it right now. So it's been it's been really lovely. Just lastly, what what has that response been like? You know, to think I think sometimes there can be a, a sort of a Canadian tendency to think, well, who's who's going to want to read a, a book about uh, you know a Canadian university? Are people going to care about my story? Obviously, they have and they do. Um, what, what sort of responses have you gotten so far from places that might have surprised you? Um, I. The surprise, and this is really the goal of my book, is that like I've been getting messages from all kinds of people, just being like, like you, like I feel like I'm you, like I feel like you and I had the exact same experiences. I feel like this opened myself up to like how much work I needed to do, how traumatic that was, um, like those kinds of things where it really hit home for people. Like it, I'm so moved by that. And, uh, you know, there's some people in the U.S., like I reached out to some authors, I reached out to Roxanne Gay, Kiese Lehman, um, Saeed Jones, and I mailed them copies because, you know, like we, Twitter is a weird place where you're kind of like, you know, you talk to people and just even to be able to do that has been crazy to be like, oh, I'm from Canada. I'm from like, you know, this like place that no one cares about in the States. Like, will you read my book? Because I think despite it being Canadian, everyone has had this experience. 
and the book's not available in Canada or anywhere else. Sorry, in the U.S., it's only available in Canada. But even hearing from people who are like in Australia being like, can I, where can I get your book? I've had the same experience is really touching. So it did good. It all turned out. It is all for the best. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I'm, I'm really glad to be able to catch up and, and talk to you. And, and congratulations again. Uh, what a gift it is to be able to read uh, your writing. And, uh, and I look forward to uh, when people can see it in the physical and, and be able to go to a bookstore and, and buy it. And uh, I mean, you can order it already and, and get it from local bookstores. They'll deliver, many do. But again, what a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening and I hope you liked it. If you enjoy the show, do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and review. Most of all, tell someone else about it. If you want to find Eternity's book, it's available now through McClelland and Stewart. There's a Google map of indie bookstores still doing business. I've linked to that in the show notes. If you want to get in touch a few ways you can, you can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.